Today, as we worship, in about 40 minutes, part of our larger church is meeting in Bronzeville for their second previous service. I was there for the first one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can clap towards the end as I say this. There was about 100 folks that worshipped in the first preview service there. And uh, it was just an amazing blessing to see as our, as our church and as our congregation continues to expand to reach the larger city of Chicago. You'll hear more actually in a couple of weeks about uh, our church planting movement as part of New Community and ways that you can participate, join, and support. So as we continue to pray and give you more information about Bronzeville, I want you to continue to lift up a larger church that God would continue to give us a vision for what he's calling us to do in the city of Chicago. So uh, in about 45 minutes, 1130, their second service is going to start. So keep them in your prayers, okay? Uh, Before I, uh, well, as a part of our sermon today, I need to apologize for something insensitive I said last Sunday. (laughs) So you apparently all know what I'm going to talk about, okay? So last Sunday, if you were not here, I made this comment, something along the lines of, if you're working at Starbucks part-time, like, get a real job. Something like that, right? And I said that, and I got this, like, vile reaction from everybody. It was like, whoa. So I went home, and I thought about what I said, and I was like, hmm, maybe that wasn't the most pastoral thing to say. (laughs) I got one email, one email from somebody saying that was insensitive, sort of, so, you know, what was that all about? You're not normally an insensitive person, blah, blah. So I just want to do an apology and an explanation, okay? Here's the uh, apology, apologies. I'm sorry for saying that because that was rude and insensitive. And my explanation simply was this. I was talking to Michael. You know, did you know that uh, I'm one of those people, I have like three conversations going on inside my head and I actually say one thing, but then I've already talked through like two other, you know, that's how, that's why I talk so fast. So here was what was going through my head. What was going through my head was this. What's going through my head was I was channeling my mom and my dad, my parents, first-generation Koreans who came to this country. My mom, I remember working 16, 18 hours at a restaurant, you know, as a cook, as doing stuff. My dad pursuing his PhD in school, but also working eight, nine hours. And the immigrant story in me was like, when you live in America and you try and make it, you do whatever you have to do, you know, to put food on the table. That's kind of the mentality I grew up with. So I remember my parents saying, when you go to college and you get a good degree, don't waste that degree. Get a real job. See, that's why I said, get a real job and work so on and so forth. And so I was channeling that. I was not in any way saying, if you work part-time, because that's literally like how you make ends meet or you work in different places because you're financially just strapped that you need to get a real, I don't know what I was saying at all. I was simply talking to like maybe three people in this room for whom it's a luxury, no, no, luxury, frankly, just to, chill out and work part-time because our parents are supporting us and we could take our time. You know what I mean? So yeah, it was the kind of the first generation Korean thing in me. We're like, get a real job. When I really meant for a lot of you that are working and having a hard time financially, so on and so forth, and you're doing whatever you can. I know this is hard time and I want to be pastorally sensitive. But to some of you, and I, I feel like another apology is coming next Sunday. But some, listen, listen. But a hand, just a small number of you guys. To be financially responsible means at some point, especially if your parents are supporting you and you have the ability to just go and find, it may not be what you want to do, but to be able to find a job so that you could alleviate some of the pressure from your parents, so on and so forth, to do so. Because I think it's the right thing. Does that make sense? So that's what I wanted to say. Not, get a real job. You know, that's not, that's insensitive and rude and mean. So didn't want to say that. So anyway, I don't know if that made any sense, but whatever. <laughs> I want to read you guys an email. <clears throat> because I think it gets to the heart of what we've been talking about as we're talking about the sermon series, Treasure, and looking at money, wealth, and possessions. This email says... As newlyweds who graduated about two years ago with college loans, we're trying to figure out how, to, how sacrificial giving intersects with saving money and paying off debt. You know, we want to be generous to others without being irresponsible. Anybody else asking that? Yeah. We discuss that issue a lot. But we're also questioning our understanding of being financially responsible. Is that based on a desire to be in control and secure in our future? Or is that just simply being wise and honoring to God? 
You know, I definitely think our view of being financially responsible is skewed by some sort of greed and fear. And she goes on to say that her husband was not able to find a job for the first five months, which, ugh, for them, you know. We also look at the ways we spend money and ask if it reflects our true values. And then we ask ourselves if our values are aligned with God's values. We're realizing that without knowing Jesus more, our values and spending habits will not reflect his values. We were mentioning in our small group that this is really a heart issue. We need to align our heart with God's and know him more. I mean, she essentially is summarizing what we've been talking about. I love that. In an effort to live simply, we're constantly talking about our spending habits and trying to learn self-control. We really enjoy going out, experiencing the city, and being with friends. This is one area in which we have to work really hard to limit our spending. We try to maintain a simple lifestyle and live below our means. And we frequently discuss what that lifestyle should look like. How many of y'all could really relate to what this person is saying so far? Raise your hands. I'm really, really, raise your hands. See, a lot of you, right? See, I know for, for, for most of us, it's not just, I'm greedy, you know? For most of us, it's not, I don't want to give. For most of us, it's like fear, anxiety. I want to be responsible, but uh, I mean, these are really honest questions. And then she ends by saying, lastly, it's a continual struggle to limit our spending to our budget. The fact that she has a budget, great. Because a lot of us don't. Especially if we can justify overspending for ministry purposes. For example, we really love welcoming people into our home and sharing meals with them. And we view that as a form of ministry. And usually and always, that includes a healthy portion of wine. (laughs) So, it's easy for us to justify buying plenty of wine at Trader Joe's and exceed our budget because it's for ministry purposes. Is it bad to serve wine at community groups? No, it's great. (laughs) Have a good night. Now, listen, listen. Here's the essence of her questions, her struggle, and why we're approaching this sermon series. Because if you're sitting there going, show me the Bible verses where it talks about, can I buy wine at Trader Joe's? Is that okay? Show me the Bible verses where, is it okay for us to go out to the city, enjoy our friends? Show me the Bible. The Bible doesn't have specific verses that address specific context. The Bible says, what is your treasure? The Bible's getting to what is the fundamental motivation that prompts why you do what you do. Because if we get a handle on that, then we don't have to live our lives like specific context. Is it okay to spend money there? How much? If we truly and honestly come to a place where we're saying, God, you are my beauty. God, you are my status. God, you are my, you, you are my uh, sense of worth. You are my identity. You are my significance. If we come to that place of saying, Jesus, you are my treasure, and I don't find these other things to fill my heart. If we could truly come to that place, then we can with security, confidence, and joy live our lives to the full. I mean, that's the essence of this because there, there are no specific Bible verses that will give you, you know, uh, directions to how to spend every single. The Bible simply says, get to a place where Jesus is your treasure because where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. Okay, I'm, I, I got that. I'm getting, I'm getting there. And then Jesus simply says, then live. Live. And you will be generous. Live. And you won't spend your money on significance-finding things. You won't spend your money on identity-shaping things. You won't spend your... Live. That's how Jesus intended for us to live. Does that make sense? And hence the sermon series, Treasure. We're getting to that place of saying, God, I want you to be my absolute, utter, total, satisfying thing. Because then I can live my life knowing that however I spend will be ultimately honoring to you, glorifying to you. And see, that's the challenge, though. And that's why money exerts such enormous influence on in our lives. Whether you have a lot or little, it doesn't really matter. Because for many of us, it's not just money. Money is about significance, identity, sense of worth, sense of security. This sermon series is just an excuse for me to talk about Jesus. Because if we get a handle on that, 
do so you can experience life. So no, I am not starting out with, you need to give this much percentage. It's not about percentages. It's not about where you, it's about Christ and Christ only dictating everything that we do so that we can begin to live our lives, whether we have plenty, as today's scripture would say, or whether we're in need, we can do all things through him who strengthens us. Hmm. That's the goal. That's where we want to be. But it's hard, isn't it? It's hard, isn't it? <laughs> like, yeah. So here's what we want to talk about today. As we continue to look at kind of the bottom, what is the underneath, underneath motivation issue. I want to talk to you about something that plagues all of us in America. And it's this word, discontentment. Anybody discontent? Is that, is that a word? Discontented? Is that a word? Okay, discontent. Anybody discontented this morning? Wow, like three people. Anybody discontented this morning? Okay, let me, let me put it this way. How many of you guys, if there was a big old button right here, that if you could press it, you could be completely and utterly content with life, would come up here and do it? Yeah, yeah. Some of y'all are like grabbing your wife going, come on, honey, we got to get up there. Okay, for you. And I even look at yourself like, you need to be good. All of us would. You and I both know, and I'm not going to spend a long time on this, the reasons why we are plagued with a sense of discontentment. You and I live in a culture where we live and breathe this culture of discontent. Every single day, we are bombarded by everything around us that says what we have is not quite enough. It's not quite new enough. It's not quite, you know, shiny enough. It's not quite good enough. Every single day of our lives, we are reminded that we need something more. We need something better. We need something shinier. And so here's what happens. We live in a culture where desires become hopes and then hopes become wants. And then once become needs. Hello. So we've gone on a journey where, listen, we started with desires. And before you and I know it, it's a need. And we don't even know. We don't even know that it's happened. We're constantly reminded of things that we need that we didn't know that we needed. Does anybody, uh, CVS is like a dangerous place for me. I don't do like Costco because Costco is just way too overwhelming. So when I go to Costco, I make a beeline. I like rarely go with Jenny, but I make a beeline for whatever I need. But when I go to CVS, man, I go to buy like one thing and I'm, I'm lost in there. I'm like, oh my gosh, look at all this stuff, you know? I like find myself wandering through the aisles, right? So I come home and I have two bags and Jenny's like, I thought you went to go get like aspirin. What's that? No, I had to buy this and I had to buy that. Viewer experience. Anybody know what I'm talking about? There are things that you needed that you didn't know you needed until you saw it. (laughs) Anybody know what I'm talking about? All of a sudden, yes, you see it and you go, I need one of those. No, you didn't. You did fine without it until you saw it. But we live in a culture where it's not just hearing about it. We see what we supposedly need. Christmas time. I'm going to my mailbox. Mailbox is like full. I'm like, Jenny, we have tons of friends. They're not friends. They're not cards. They're catalogs, right? Our mailbox is like 10, 15 catalogs. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Every single day, week, season of our lives here in the United States. And you're going, I, you're in a CTA. You could be on a train. You can't get away from it. Everywhere you go, bombarded with, here's what you need. Anybody in marketing? Isn't that the whole goal of marketing? Is to get somebody to say, you need one of those. And somehow churn your desires and convince that person that they needed it. What do you do that? What do you do about that? Think about this, you guys. You know, the problem with discontentment or contentment. And the reason why this is so hard is because discontentment is an appetite. Discontentment is an appetite. And the problem with appetites is it never goes away. Think about this. 
Discontentment is not just an intellectual, mental like, oh, discontentment is not something you just, discontentment is an appetite. In other words, it never goes away. Anybody, you get hungry, you eat, you get full as you possibly can, and you like to think, I'm never, ever going to be hungry again. What happens after a few hours? Or like two hours if you eat Chinese food, right? Like two hours later, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm hungry again. I just ate like a big old meal, but I'm hungry again. And here's the thing. We think appetites, you feed it and it'll go away. It's opposite. Appetites, you feed it and it grows and it grows and it grows and it grows. I'm describing the state of culture in America. If we just have that, if I could just, come on, how many of you guys know? This is so common sense. How many of you guys know? If I only have that, I'll be totally okay. You get it? And all of a sudden, oh, wow, that didn't quite do it. I guess I'm going to appetite. It doesn't go away when you feed it. You feed it, it grows, and it grows, and it grows. You're never satisfied. So what do you do when you live in a culture that says, here's what you can do to fulfill this appetite that'll never, ever go away? What do you do? Move to another country? I'm tired of living in America. The consumerism. So I'm just going to get out. No, because you know, maybe there's like one country in the world where this won't be an issue. Moving to another country is not going to do it. What do you do? Just say no? Just say no. No. No, Peter. No. When you go to CVS, just get those aspirin and just, just say no. You might just, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. How many of us have the vicious cycle of, you know what? I'm going to do better about my finances. Just say no. And then you totally go against what you said you were going to do. Just saying no doesn't work either. What do you do? The letter that we're going to look at today in portion of it was a letter that was written by a guy named Paul to a young man named Timothy who was pastoring a church. And in the passage that we're going to look at today, Paul gets to the heart of what do we do about this appetite called discontentment that can literally drive us, some of us, to financial ruin. Let me just ask you guys something. How many of you guys know somebody who's made a mess of their lives, mess of relationships because they of money? Raise your hands high. How can anybody say this is not an issue? Turn your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. All this talk about appetites getting me hungry, y'all. Does anybody know what else I'm talking about with Chinese food? Like after two hours, you get hungry. Anybody know what I'm talking about? What is that? What is that? I'm serious. Somebody tell me, like, what is it about Chinese food after two hours, you get hungry again? MSG? That doesn't make any sense. What do you mean MSG? It fools you? It, like, lulls you into thinking? What? Okay. You know, the only food that really, really fills me up is Italian food. It does. I mean, I eat a bowl of pasta and I'm good for like three hours, you know? Anyway. One other comment about First Timothy chapter 6. As you guys will see, First Timothy chapter 6 is addressed to rich people. Now, all of us are going, rich people, that's not me. Listen, according to the Bible, New Testament authors, 99.9% of us are rich people. Do you know why? Here's what was considered rich in ancient times. If you had more than just a daily allowance of food, you were rich. Do you remember Jesus' prayer? Give us our what? Daily bread. Why? Because people knew if you just had food hand to mouth for that day, beyond that, you were rich. If you were able to go beyond, if you were able to work just five days a week, you were rich. Why? Keeping the Sabbath was so hard. And that's why the Bible talks about it. For us, Sabbath is like, oh, Sabbath. Yeah, I need my Sabbath, you know. So hang out, drink my coffee, and not think about life or rest. Sabbath for these people was, I have to work seven hours or we might not eat. Or seven days. So for them, keeping the Sabbath was like, only six days of work? You mean like... Only six. That's what Sabbath keeping was for these people. That's the culture they came from. Today, we live in a country, holy cow, y'all, where there's this thing called unemployment checks. Oh my gosh! Like you don't work and they pay you not to work. Now, I'm, I'm being a little facetious, but you know what I mean? Like your company lays you off and they have unemployment sort of benefits or checks. To, unemployment? Are you kidding me in this culture? 
This was a culture in which hand to mouth, working six days of the week, having food on the table, and you had beyond that, so you actually owned possessions, you actually owned something, you were considered what? Rich. So this is addressed to all of us. Here's what Paul says. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. The word gain there literally in Greek means wealth. It means mega wealth. Mega wealth. So here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, but godliness with contentment is mega wealth. And what is contentment? Here's what contentment is. Contentment is the ability to be completely happy and completely at rest and inner peace, regardless of what's going outside in circumstances. So here's what Paul is saying. Paul's saying, if you are somebody who could be in a place where you could be completely happy and completely at rest and at peace, regardless of circumstances outside, he says, that's great wealth. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you guys would like to get to that place where the striving ends, the drive ends, the vicious cycle of the rat's race, and the vicious, like, I gotta, how many of you guys would just love to get to that place where you could just go, regardless of what's going on around you. Anybody? Yeah. Matter of fact, the Greek philosophers at this time said that that was the highest human virtue to say to somebody, for somebody to get to that place where there's inner peace and rest and a sense of inner joy. No matter what's going on physically, no matter what's going on financially, no matter what's going on outside, to get to that place of just, ah, was the highest virtue. And Paul comes along and says, that is great wealth, mega wealth. You know why Paul does that? And you guys could relate to this. I could still relate to this. Because Paul knows that for many of us, for many people, the drive for accumulation of wealth, need for more and more, as this email, and this person wonderfully and honestly said, the drive for that is to feel safe and secure. The drive for that for a lot of people is not selfish, it's not greed, it's not, you know, for a lot of people, the drive for this thing to get to that place of, ah, is a longing for security, it's a longing for safety. It's to get to that place where, again, we talked about this, in an uncontrollable world, in a place where circumstances can't be controlled, people can't be controlled, it's a desperate thing that we have to be able to say, ah, I want there to be sense of control. I want to know that I can manage sort of my life. I want to know that, that I I'm not just bound by circumstances. So I want to have the sense of security, sense of safety. We look at the world around us. And for a lot of us, especially as we're young, just getting started, we look at the economy. We say, what if I can't find a job like this person? What if my husband can't find a job? What if I lose my job? What if, what if the, the recession gets, gets hit really, we get really hard with recession, it lasts longer. We have all these what ifs and these fears and these anxieties. And in order for us to go, I want to make sure that no matter what happens, I am going to be okay. I, I got to. Be about me. I got, I, I got to take care of me. And it keeps us from giving in biblical proportions what God says in Scripture. It's not stinginess for a lot of people. It's fear. It's anxiety. And we, we honestly think, if I just have this, if I could just manage this, I'll be safe. I'll be secure. I'll be able to go... But the problem is, Jesus said this over and over again. It doesn't work. You know why it doesn't work? Look what he said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Jesus saying, here's what you need to realize. The biggest savings account in the world will not ultimately make you secure. You can't stop tragic accidents. You can't stop death. You can't stop cancer. You can't stop these life-altering events that come into your life. 
And he says, as much as you want to try and manage the sense of control and security and, 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 and in an out-of-control world, he says, you can't. Because the things that you use to dry that will expire, will die out, will leave you. And will never get to that place. He's saying the only thing in your life, the only thing in my life that can truly be counted on as security, as deep foundation, as an anchor for our soul that's unshakable is Jesus and Jesus alone. He is our true security. He is our true safety. He is our true foundation. You know, a lot of people, and and as a pastor, I encountered this, a lot of people think that if I have more money, my self-doubts would go away. People equate sort of like, I want to be more self-assured, so I'm going to make more money. Anybody know? The most insecure, furthest thing from self-assured people I know are some of the wealthiest people in the world. They're some of the most insecure people. Some people think, if I had more money, if I just made more money, then more people will like me. More people want to be around me. This is a tragedy of tragedies. If you do that, if you get more wealth and whatever, by clothes, appearance, by safety, if you do that to make money to be the thing that will be the relational goal, the ultimate tragedy is you'll never know whether people like you for you or people like you because of your money. It doesn't make relationships better. It tears apart. Is there anything more tragic than that? Spending all our money, all our wealth possessions, spending all the things that we have just to get to that place. So somebody will like me. Somebody will find me attractive. And then for us to find out they were never interested in you for you. But what you could give, what you have. Some people think if I had more money, then I wouldn't worry as much. It's the opposite. You worry more because you got more to lose. Paul says, if you really, really want wealth, true wealth, you want to be so secure that you can smile at the storm. You can be this person that can smile at the storm. Regardless of the circumstances, he says, the key is to know Christ and to know that you know Christ. Here's one of the most misquoted verses in all of Scripture. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. He says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. And by the way, this is a guy who's writing in prison awaiting execution. Verse 12, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Verse 13, misquoted, I can do everything through him that gives me strength. And immediately the image comes to mind, right, of that boxer with the belt, Philippians 4.13. And he says, I can beat the crap out of this guy because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The context of this verse is talking about wealth, money, and contentment. What is Paul saying? Martin Luther said it this way. He says, a Christian is somebody who gets up in the morning and he says, I'm wealthy. I am rich beyond all means. And that's just a psychological ploy. They say, I am wealthy. I am wealthy beyond all means. Why? Because Jesus, you lived the life I should have lived and you died to death. I should have died. You took what I deserved so that I can get what you deserve. I got what you deserve. And now because of you, I am an heir of the living God. I am wealthy. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Christian, somebody gets up in the morning and says, I am secure. I've got things that can never, ever be taken away. I have security in Christ. I am adopted into the family of God. I am called his beloved. I have the Holy Spirit living in me to transform me in all my weaknesses and making me into like him. I'm secure. Nothing in this life, nor death, angels or demons, could ever separate that. I am secure. And beauty? Good God! You gotta get up in the morning and go, I am God's treasured possession. Do you remember that word from last week? Possession. God's treasured possession. I said last week, what do you give somebody who has everything? That would make their heart skip a beat. What do you give Bill Gates that he would look at and go, (gasps) What do you give God 
the creator of the universe, owner of the stars, the galaxies. What do you give God to make his heart skip a beat and say, ah! He says, you and me. I mean, good God. Jesus says, Paul says, I can do all things through him who gives these. In other words, I can find security. I can find safety. I can find wealth and duty that could make me smile regardless of the circumstances because I know who I belong to and I know whose I am. Knowing Christ and knowing that I know Christ. Is that good news? I'm telling you right now. That is that if this is not the bottom anchor of your soul, when the circumstances come and hits up against you, there's no joy. There goes joy right there. There goes a sense of security right there. And we're grasping and searching and saying, if I could only, when God comes along and says, you want to you wanna get to that place where you can go, oh, regardless of what's going on, I can do all things through him. Know Christ. And know that you know Christ. And there's nothing more powerful. And the reason why this is, this is so big for me, you guys, is as we talk a lot about being missional and living our lives as witness for Christ, there's nothing more powerful to a non-Christian than seeing a beautiful life. And in this situation, let me tell you what a beautiful life is. A beautiful life is when a non-Christian looks at a Christian and says, Oh my goodness! How can you be that radically generous? Look at this. Everybody's up for themselves. Everybody's saying, oh, we can't give anymore. Everybody's just looking out because they can't find security, anything else about that. And they're looking at a Christian going, how the heck can you smile during this time and be as radically generous to those in need as you are? What is it about you? To which you can say, I know Christ and I know. I know where my security is found. I know where my worth is found. I know where my wealth is are. There's nothing more beautiful. There's no more powerful testimony. I'm telling you, there's no more powerful testimony during a time like this when the God of materialism, God of greed, and God of wealth has been crucified and shows no sign of resurrection to say, I know a God who resurrected from the dead and reigns today as King and Lord. And because of him, I can give. I'm secure. Amen? Guys, this is a critical time for Christians, followers of Jesus, to stand up and live attractive, beautiful lives in the face of the storm where they see you and go, how are you able to smile? You can say, no, Jesus. Verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world and we could take nothing out of it. Now, on the surface, that's just good common sense, right? It just kind of says, you know what? When you die... There's nothing you can take with you. Okay, you could take your purse and the coffin with you. But you know, the purse will still be there when you're going to be long gone, right? So the surface level, but here's the thing. Most commentators say that what Paul says here is what Job said in the book of Job. Do you remember Job? Job experiences unbelievable suffering. Inexplainable suffering. Job experiences suffering. He, thinks, he says, I'm an innocent man. He lives as a righteous man. And he experiences this way. His children are killed. His wealth and possessions are taken away. And he himself is left, okay, with, with, with illness. I mean, his life is, at a, is, is in the pits, if you will. But Job had this beautiful poise about him. Beautiful poise about him. And he says this. He says, naked I came into the world. And naked I will go out. The Lord gave and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Why is that important? Nakedness in the Bible is not just nudity. Nakedness in the Bible is not just physical nudity. Nakedness in the Bible is vulnerability, is defenselessness. Nakedness in the Bible, nakedness in the Bible, a metaphor symbolizes vulnerability, defenselessness. Nakedness in the Bible gets to that innate, innate thing in the human heart that says, I am insignificant. And what Paul's getting is this. Why do we run around so hard? Why do we work so much? Why do we try to gain possessions and wealth? He says, it's all an effort to cover our nakedness. Fig leaves. Fig leaves. That's all it is. He says, we're trying to deal with the sense of nakedness, vulnerability, defenselessness. So here it is, fig leaves. Security. I got a security. Significance. Beauty. Wealth. We're all just running around like crazy, trying to cover our nakedness and saying, if I could only, if I could only, if I could only. Are you doing that? 
I do that all the time. I do it all the time. Somebody, I shared this with you guys. You know, uh, one of my idols or idolatry, and this is so subtle, is, 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 is this how you see it. People come into my office, and they see all the shelves and shelves of books, right? And I just, confession time, you know, so they go, oh my gosh, you read all of these? Which I haven't, by the way. You read all of these books? You know, I go, man, you, you must read a lot, you know. And of course, he's stroking my ego, you know. Because I don't ever say to them, yeah, you know what, the idolatry, the idolatry of my life, you know what the idolatry of my life is? My idolatry of my life is not books. Idolatry of my life is not, you know, buying a lot of books and shelves. Idolatry of my life is knowledge and is knowing that I know stuff. So I effortlessly spend money and to try and cover the fact that I really don't know a whole lot by buying lots and lots of books. So I want people to think, oh, he's really smart. He's really knowledgeable. He knows. It's so easy. It's so natural. Where do you most effortlessly spend money? Come on, be. Come on, come on, come on. Where do you most, you know, most, they don't even think about it. Oh, it's time to give to God's cause. Like, but then there's the other thing. You don't, it's a, it's a, it, 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 you see what I mean. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> Verse eight. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Now, there's some people who took this verse and said, here's what God is calling us to do. Embrace voluntary poverty. Is that what Paul's saying? Is Paul saying everybody needs to embrace voluntary poverty? There's some Christians who have been called to do that. But the interesting thing about this text is this. You also have verses 17 and 18 where Paul says, Command them, that is the rich, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Everybody look up here. Everybody look up here. This is so important. This is so important. So important. Because in a sermon series like this in our church, it's very easy for the rich people to walk away going, I feel so guilty. I have so much money. I feel guilty going out to eat and spending all this money. I feel guilty living in the neighborhood. I feel guilty buying that house. I feel, and we can go, ah, a lot of that, unfortunately, is driven by bad theology that people interpret like this, where they go, money is bad. Money is evil. Is money bad? Is money evil? You know where that mentality comes from? It's this nasty dichotomy again, theologically. It's very weak theology. It says material things, physical things are bad. It's evil. The spiritual things, they're good things. So you lump money into material, physical things and go, that's bad. God comes along and says, everything I created is good, including the material things. So what does God say? God comes along and says, look, I've given some tremendous wealth. Look at the scriptures. Joseph, Abraham, Job, and the list goes on and on. People in the Bible who are rich by God's blessing. And God says, here's the reason why I've given you wealth. You are to be rich in good deeds. Let me say this one time and then I'll move on. If you are gifted to make money, you've been given opportunities, schools, jobs, and you are making a lot of money. I mean, like really a lot of money. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to make as much money as you possibly can. And I want you to give away that money, as much of that money as you possibly can. Can I get an amen from the wealthy folks? At least y'all are honest, you know? You're like, I ain't going to amen to that. I don't care how much you say so. Let me say it one more time. It's bad theology to go. If I'm wealthy, it's because something's wrong. If I have a lot of money, I'm cursed. If I have a lot of money, somehow I'm less of a Christian. God says, if you have wealth, I have blessed you. I have given it to you. So now give a lot of away because that's how I fund my kingdom work. So if you're wealthy, be proud of it and give away as much of it as possible. Can I get an amen? Because here's the other thing about this too. If we all embrace voluntary poverty, the problem with that is it's not even missionally theologically correct. Can I say that one more? We need rich people in rich circles. I need some of you Christians that are so radically committed to God that you're willing to be in circles that you are in and yet live a radically different life. Let me just give you a very, very hard example. If we all embrace voluntary poverty, like 85% of us in here would have to move out of the places we live in Chicago because it's expensive to live in the city. Why are we here? God says, I've given you resources, opportunities, and a mission to reach the city of Chicago. And where you're at, be radically generous. What does that mean? We're going to talk about this in a moment. That means this, you guys. That means that instead of Christians embracing, all Christians embracing voluntary poverty, what all Christians are called to is to embrace voluntary simplicity. 
Say it with me. Voluntary. Say it with me. Ready? Voluntary. Simplicity. That means that regardless of where you're at, here's what God's calling us to do. In a Christian, as Christians, wherever you find yourself in the income bracket, wherever you find in that sphere, God says, here's what I want you to embrace this faithful biblical living. You are so generous to even embrace the lifestyle that might be one, two, three, four notches lower than everybody else in your income category. Wow. That's radical. That's radical. Scripture says, don't take all the Christians out from the spheres of influence. He says, no, Christians, you stay. But in that, you do something that's so radical to blow people away, which is you choose intentionally to live simply in such a way that in that circle, you're living one, two, three, four notches lower. Let me make it this way. The more money you make, the more you go up in the ladder, the greater the distance should be between how you could live and how you do live. Biblical stewardship, living as a follower of Jesus, let me simplify for you, is we're so radically generous that within our income circles when people go, you could live so much more. We say, I know I could live like that, but as a follower of Jesus, here's what I'm committed to. There's greater distance in terms of how I could live and how I actually do live. We go on. Verse 9. People want to get rich, fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Verse 10. For the love, here's the distinction, love of money. Love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many, many griefs. Here's the heart of what this passage is about, and we've sort of alluded to in the last couple weeks. The Bible says that money is a trap. That's the heart of this passage. Money is a trap. Now, listen carefully what Scripture says, because it's one of the most misquoted, and the most misquoted verses in the Bible. It's not money itself. We've covered that. Money, material, physical things. God has blessed it and said it's neutral in and of itself. It could be used for righteousness or for evil. God says it's not, it is the love of and, and what Paul is saying is so interesting because in verses 6, 7, and 9, he's talking to those who don't have much. In verses 17 to 19, chapter 6, he's talking to people who have a lot. He's saying, regardless of who you are, it is a desire for, it is an ordinate, or inordinate desire for, inordinate want of. It's kind of this obsession of, it's this kind of constant drivenness to want more, to accumulate more, to have more. It's that, and love of that, that can become a trap. The word trap in Greek, was a little word that was used for a trap to catch a bird. It was this little ropey thingy, okay? This little ropey thingy. And, and what they would do, they would put a little food, like right beside the ropey thingy, okay? And a little bird would come, okay? It would try to get the food, and, and, and it would capture it, okay? It, so it, so the, the, the whole thing about this trap, and I did a terrible description of what this trap is, but this trap, it would catch a little bird, okay? The big thing about that, it was, it was hidden. You couldn't see it. Bird couldn't see it. So Paul combines this trap Little bird trap with foolishness. And he's saying a powerful statement. Because foolishness in Hebrew connotes somebody who acts like they know something when they don't. Somebody who is deceived. Somebody who is clearly sort of out of touch with reality. And he says simply, if you have an inordinate desire for money, if an inordinate desire for wealth, if you have an inordinate desire to accumulate and more and more and more, he says you fall into this trap and you act like a fool. To which we go, how do we do that? I thought at least a couple ways. Here's one. The desire for money binds us to the difference between needs and wants. You guys, if I look up here, do you know why Paul uses the term desires and appetites? It connotes addiction. Let's talk a little bit about addiction. I'm fortunate enough to have some friends Folks who are going through rehab and addiction. Here's the thing about addiction. There's this thing called the tolerance effect. You guys know what the tolerance effect is? Tolerance effect is what? You have the substance, right? And after a while, the effect of the substance wears off. So you've got to have more and more and more. And Paul says, desire for it, in order to desire for money, it, it creates a tolerance effect. How does that happen? Here's how it happens. You don't have any money. You start making some money. You're able to buy things, do things that you couldn't do before, Right? Now, here's the thing. 
Those items are luxuries. Here's the definition of luxury. Something that you were able to do without before. That's a luxury. Simple, right? So luxury, we could define all, but luxury is simply, you know, things that we could, so here's the thing. We start making more money and we start getting and doing things and buying things that we were fine without before. But tolerance effect. Now all of a sudden, we're used to them. We're accustomed to them. All these things that were luxuries that we were able to do without, that we were fine without, now all of a sudden we go, I need it. You were like fine without it like a year ago. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Happy as a clam. You were fine without it, right? Yeah, yeah. It was just a desire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now all of a sudden it's a why? Why? I've just described our culture. We're all addicts. You guys, I mean, I don't want me to offend. You know, I don't you know, I'm not an addict. Who do you think? You, we act a fool. We're blind. Think of the things that we were okay without. They were truly luxury items. And all of a sudden, a switch happens. And these luxuries have become a necessity. Confession time. When I get up in the morning, I'm at a hotel traveling. You know the coffee they have in hotels? It's coffee. I didn't start drinking coffee until like seven, eight years ago. It's coffee. You know what I mean? Seven, eight years ago, somebody gave me like instant coffee, you know? Like in Korea, they drink this instant coffee where they just drink, you know? Oh, at Starbucks says now too, you like put the coffee and then you put hot water in it and voila, you have coffee, you know? I'm like, mmm, coffee, good coffee. Now I go to hotels and there's coffee. I'm going, oh, that's not coffee. That's crap. (laughs) So I will drive my way or walk 10, 15 minutes. (laughs) And I honestly find myself saying this. Friends of mine go, where are you going? I need some coffee. Where? Starbucks. Wait, wait, Peter, you got Starbucks? No, I need, you don't say I (laughs) It's coffee. (laughs) Tolerance effect. Let me ask you something, honestly. Think, 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 think for a moment. Please, please, please. please. How different would your life look if you were able to recognize today as you walk out of here, what are the things in my life that has become a necessity that used to be a luxury? What are the things in my life that I was able to do fine without? And I was perfectly happy. But tolerance effect. And now these are no longer luxuries. They're necessities. They're no longer negotiables. They're non-negotiables. They're no longer wants and desires. But I need them. Trap. Before you ever know it, boom. It's a need. It's a necessity. It's an unnegotiable. And we're driven. And we're driven, driven. Second way, second way that we're blind, the desire for money blinds us to our enslavement to a ruthless master. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus says something really, really striking powerful. He said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and what? Say it with me. You cannot serve without end. Now, does anybody think that verse is weird? Because if you think about it, Jesus would, should have said, you cannot serve both God and devil, Satan. You would think Jesus would say, no, you cannot serve both God. Allegiance will be split between God and money. Jesus, no, 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 no. The allegiance will be between God and mammon or stuff or money, not you and devil. To which you go, I don't serve stuff. I use it. I'm not like enslaved. I'm not bound to. I use it. To which Jesus goes, no, 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 don't you. Your money, your stuff, and your wealth ultimately tells you, and he's using strong language. He's using language of slavery, who you're bound to, who you're chained to, who you answer to, who your master is. Let's just speak very frankly here. Don't raise your hands. Don't raise your hands. How many of you guys have consumer debt? In case you don't know what that is, that's called credit card debt. How many of you guys have credit card debt? Because if you're the average American, 80% of us in here have some form of credit card debt that's above $1,000. Do you know what consumer debt does to us? 
How many of you guys have ever been to a place where you're going, I'd like to do more. I want to do more. I'd like to give more, but I can't. Why? Because every month that bill comes along and says, ha ha, you owe us. Hello, ha ha, you, you belong to us. Hey, 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 I know you'd like to do more, but you know what? Right now, right now you, now let me just be pastorally sensitive. Some of us have school debt that we're paying off which is a good and right thing to do. I'm not talking about school debt. I'm talking about consumer debt, credit card debt, stuff that we thought was a need but really was a want. And we ching it anyway. And every month there is that thing that comes and says, you owe me money. And you don't think Americans are enslaved? You don't think Americans are bound? You don't think Americans are chained? You're a slave when you're forced to do something that you don't want to do that's outside of the boundaries of your will. And for many of us in this room, we listen to sermons series like this and we go, I want to be more generous. I want to be more radical in my giving, but I just can't. Why? I'm bound. A statement every month. Can I have some fun with you guys? So I thought of some statements that get to whether you're trapped, you're bound. If you spend more money in a year than you actually make, you're trapped. If you don't know whether you make more money in a year than you spend, you are trapped. (laughs) Nervous laughter. (laughs) Three. If you don't care that you spend more money than you make in a year, you are probably, say it with me, trapped. Number four. If you earn more money on your car than the car is actually worth, you are, say it with me, giraffe. Five. If you don't know how much you owe on your car, you are <laughs> trapped. Number six. If paying the minimum on your credit card is a way of life, you are, say, giraffe. Number seven. If you think paying the minimum on your credit card is good financial planning, You are, and the word trap gets quieter and quieter and quieter. (laughs) Oh, this is a big one. You ready? If you have no method of tracking where your money goes, you are trapped. Two things real quick, real quick. One of the best ways to keep track of money, you guys heard the envelope method? Save all of your receipts, and at the end of the month, put in an envelope, Everything you spent, all the receipts, $2.50 doesn't matter. Put all in an envelope, and at the end of that month, take everything out from that envelope, lay it on your table, and take a look. You'll know where you're spending money. There's a way to keep track of it. Two more. If you're, financial, if you're making financial decisions that you don't want your spouse to know about, you are. If you're making financial decisions that you don't want the IRS to know about, you <laughs> Uh, probably. There's an infallible human rule. Spending begets spending. If there's one thing I want you to hear today, please hear this, people. You and I will always just get by no matter what. Because as our income increases, if we don't keep a track, our lifestyle will increase. Come on. I mean, see, my heart just, uh, because a lot of you are in college and you're about to go get jobs. A lot of you are just beginning your careers and you're going, you know what? I only make this much money. And so when I get to be this, I'll be really more generous because I only have. And you're thinking that. But what you need to realize is the inevitable heart, unless it's captured by the beauty of Christ, is that as our income increases, so does our spending. We always just get by. So when somebody makes 30000 I'm just getting by. But when the same person begins to make sixty, they are just getting by. You cannot just wish this away. Tolerance effect. So what do we do? What do we do? Simple biblical principle. We'll talk more about this next week. Is you increase the percentage of your giving as your income increases. You increase your generosity and continue to be more radically generous as your income increases. Bridling discontentment is not come by... If you have food and clothing, Paul says, we'll be content with that. 
What is he saying? Aim to live in a lower end of your income bracket as you give radically, as you give generously, as you make choices that as my income increases, I don't automatically go, you know what? Now that I make more money, my income. We say, now that my income increases, how do I leverage it so that I can give even more of that to his kingdom? John Wesley, the great evangelist of the 18th century, In 1731, he began to limit his expenses so that he would have more money to give to the poor. In the first year of his income, he made 30 pounds, 30 pounds, which was about a year's worth of wages. And he found that he could live on 28 pounds. So John Wesley gave away two. In the second year, his income doubled, but he had his expenses even. He kept his expenses even. And so he had 32 pounds to give away, which was about a year's worth of income today he gave away. In the third year of his income, his income jumped to 90 pounds, triple what he had made. And he gave away 62 pounds, keeping his income and keeping his living right around 2830. In his life, entire life, as his income advanced, historians say that John Wesley made as much as 1,400 pounds a year. 1,400 pounds a year from 30. But he rarely let his expenses rise above 30 pounds, his own lifestyle. And he said that seldom, he seldom had more than 100 pounds in his possession at a time. When he died in 1791, at the age of 87, the only money that was left in John Wesley And that was mentioned in his will was the coins to be found in his pocket and dresser. They said that in his life, most of the 30,000 pounds he earned, he gave away. Keeping his lifestyle and committing to it as his career began. He said this quote, if I leave behind me 10 pounds, you and all mankind bear witness against me that I died a thief and a robber. Does it sound extreme to you? Of course it does. Stuff like this seems absolutely crazy in the culture we live in. Go, what? I want to end with Jesus. I I don't want to end with a practical principle. I need to end with Jesus. So I need to talk to you about how it is that we ultimately bridle our discontentment. I don't want to tell you a cool story that goes, oh my gosh, I need to. I want to tell you about Jesus. Is that okay? Because here's the thing, if discontentment is an appetite, daddy, you can come on up. If discontentment is an appetite, you know, if discontentment is an appetite. And the way that you and I get a handle on discontentment is not by, it's not just saying no. Discontentment, uh, the way we get a handle on that is not just by, you know, disciplining ourselves or just by practical application. How do we get a handle on this? How do we get a handle on, even as I talk to you about John Wesley and what he did. And for some of us, it's like, are you telling me that what I'm making right now as a 23, 24 year old, that even if I were to move up in my career and make five more times than this, that I could somehow limit my lifestyle to what I'm making right now so I can give the rest of it. And we're going, that's crazy. Some of us are going, in terms of what I'm making right now, what I have, how in the world can I be radically generous to biblical proportions of what God calls me to, Peter? Because that just seems absolutely unfathomable. How do we do it? In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11, Timothy gets to what I think is the answer. He says, but you, man of God, woman of God, people of God, flee from all this that is agreed, desire for money, the trap, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Here's what essentially Paul is saying. To get a handle on discontentment, to get a handle on bridling our sense of discontentment, this appetite, you and I can't just say no. We have to say yes to something else. To get a handle on discontentment and this longing, this drive that we have, appetites, we can't just say no, no, no. The Bible says you have to say yes to something else. The solution to the Bible is not the passions that you have, desires that you have, the zeal that you have. Kill it. Restrain it. The Bible says take that passion, take that zeal because it's good and channel it to something else. As I thought about this passage And the words that Paul uses when he says flee from temptation, I was reminded of another passage in Genesis that I think gives us clues to what it is that we need to do. It's story Genesis 39. Do you guys remember? Genesis 39. It's the story of Joseph, Potiphar's house. Joseph is in Potiphar's house, and he too is being tempted sexually by Potiphar's wife. 
And it's interesting because Joseph, the way he overcomes the temptation is not by saying, I, I just have to say no. The way he overcomes it is found in Genesis 39, 39.9 when he, when, when he reveals the true motivation in his heart. Je- Joseph, in the, in the face of temptation, says, as he's fleeing, he says, how could I do such a thing and sin against who? Sin against God. Here's how we deal with this contentment. Here's how we deal with the temptation for more and yearning and appetites. Joseph doesn't overcome this desire, this longing, this temptation by suppressing the desires of his heart. He's saying, you just got to say no, and I just got to. You know what he does? He looks outside of himself and enhances his desire for something else. Church, you cannot overcome the sense of discontentment, the temptation for more and yearning. No, you can't do it by looking inward and saying, I just got to say no. The Bible says the way to overcome that is to look outside yourself and saying, what is outside? What, enhan- what, can- what would enhance the beauty, the wealth, the majesty, the wonder? What is outside of me that I can look to gravitate towards? Embrace that would not just repress this longing, but the passions that I have would be channeled for something far more glorious. That's the answer. That's why you come to a new community. The pastor doesn't get up here and go, now here are the five steps. The pastor new community looks at you and says, you have no chance of being content. You have no chance of living God's life in this area by being disciplined enough, reading scripture and praying. You have no chance by saying no. The only way that you would be able to live the life God has called you to is if you look outside yourself and somehow the beauty of God, the wonder of God, the majesty of God, the sacrifice of Jesus and the love of Jesus and that captures your imagination. The reason why the church in America, my humble opinion, struggles with materialism is not because you haven't heard enough sermons about stewardship. The reason why I struggle with this is because we don't love Jesus enough. The reason why we struggle with this in America is not because we're not smart, we don't know. It's because we have yet to be blown away by the beauty, the wonder, and the majesty of the one who gave his all. And the only way that you and I, as we go through a season of Lent, as we give up things and sacrifice things, only way that we would align our life with his is if our desires were enhanced not repressed by the beauty of him by the joy of him you can't fight discontentment with willpower you have to fight discontentment with heart 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 power you have to fight discontentment by having your heart absolutely enthralled captured blown away by something so glorious that we would be able to say, if I have food and clothing, I'm going to be all right. Contentment. <laughs> Close your eyes with me. Oh, Lord. Church, will you join me in prayer? Will you join me in prayer, church? You cannot overcome this temptation. By willing yourself to do it, you have to overcome it by heart being captured by the beauty of Christ to do it. You cannot discipline your way into living biblically faithful lives. You have to passionately love Christ your way into disciplining your financial life. away by his beauty? Are you blown away by his majesty? Are you blown away by his wonder? Are you blown away? You've come to a place of saying, why would I want that when I have him? Why would I want that when I have him?
Sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great Thou art! How great Thou art! Pray with me. God, as we leave this place today, my prayer, my hope, my passions are, God, that we would be people. We would be people of God who would live our daily lives finding our true contentment in the only source that will ever, ever satisfy. That is Jesus. That is Jesus. That is Jesus. Draw near to Him and He will draw near to you is God's promise. Child of God, leave this place knowing that you are God's treasured possession. You are secure. You are wealthy. You are loved beyond comprehension by an infinitely loving, everlasting God. May that be the engine of your soul as you live this week as a radical, generous kingdom witness. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all of God's people said, and all of God's people said, amen and amen. Have a great week. We finish this sermon series next Sunday. Take care.